So I would love to transition this one more time. I'm going to invite Ashley to come up and do the reading for us. If everyone would like to pull out your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3, transition to our teaching time. This is God's word from Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their own bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, church family. You guys good? Good to see you. Uh, If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, No, Chris and I did not coordinate our outfits, uh, but we are happy to be matching here this morning. Uh, If you are new, also, you should know we're going through the book of Daniel together as a church family. And Daniel has two of maybe the three most famous Bible stories, Daniel in the lion's den, which we'll get to a few weeks. Uh, I would put David and Goliath up there as one of those like most famous Bible stories. And then the one that we're looking at today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And uh, I want to give you a little insight into my sermon preparation uh, this last week, but really kind of every week, specifically this last week in preparation. I did two things. Number one, I watched that classic interpretation of this particular story from Veggie Tales, uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny. I went back into the time machine and found it and pushed play. And Okay, so that was one thing I did. The second thing that I did is I went on Amazon. I'll have Pastor Jamin come and help me with this part. And I bought myself a gift. And I had Hannah help me with this as well. And uh, I bought myself an old flannel board rendition of this. So... Pastor Jamin is going to set this up behind me because if you do not, if you were not raised in the church as a child in like the, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s and had a flannel board of this particular story, like, I am sorry. I, I deeply grieve for you and what you missed out on. And if I was going to try to teach Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego without a flannel board, shame on me, really. I mean, so here's the deal, though. Going back, and you can be all right there, Pastor Jamin. You got... Okay, so I'm just, I fear that this all is going to come collapsing somewhere in the middle of like my really serious point. Part of the okay, sounds good. Let me say this, in all sincerity, while he's setting that up, going back and thinking about flannel graph and watching uh, the Veggie Tales reminded me just how easy it is to take a story like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to make them the hero and to turn this into a moralistic teaching of look at how brave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. You go and be brave like them. Stop me if you've heard that one. I don't know about you. I don't need anybody yelling at me to go be brave. 
What I need is fuel in the tank, motivation that will actually help me to be brave. What I need is a savior, a rescuer, and a redeemer who himself was courageous and who actually steps into situations like a fire. Thank you, Pastor Jamin. Who actually steps into situations where I am completely in over my head and actually rescues me from the fire. Is anybody tracking with me here today? I'm telling you that at the outset because this is what I do every single week. I don't watch Veggie Tales every week. I don't buy a flannel board every single week, but I do ask the question, how is Jesus the hero of this story? Every single week when I stand before you to preach and to teach, and when, when we come to a passage as familiar, a story as familiar like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I just want to telegraph right up front. That's where I'm going to try to take us. And I know that for you, for those of you especially who were raised in a Christian environment, a church, you know the flannel graph, you know the songs from the Veggie Tales. It's so easy to go moralistic. And what we need is the hope of the gospel. Amen? That's where I'm going to take us today. By God's grace, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I ask and I pray that you would help us today to have our hearts focused on Jesus, the one who rescues and who redeems us. God, I ask and I pray that we would be courageous in the face of pressure, uh, peer pressure like uh, students are facing, but God, just cultural pressure that all of us are facing. God, I ask and I pray that our hope would not be in our own ability to be courageous. I ask and I pray that our hope would be in Jesus Christ, the one who is courageous and steadfast and faithful on our behalf. God, would you guard my lips? I only want to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And would you give each and every single one of us a soft heart that would be teachable? But God, I also pray that you would light a fire in our bones, that we would want to pursue you with all that we have because we see how good you are to us and how glorious the gospel is. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, I want to show you a picture. I want to show you a poster. Brace yourself. It's kind of a, it's kind of a rough photo. Go ahead and put it up here on the board. This is, um, this is perhaps one of the most enraging things I've seen in recent weeks. Uh, if, you, if you're maybe for those who are listening online, this is a photo of a cat hanging from a, what looks like a pull-up bar, which is, I don't, that's weird for cats doing pull-ups. It says, hang in there, baby. And at the bottom it says, God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, sometimes you'll see that quote attributed to Mother Teresa. She didn't say it. No one knows who said it. It probably was Abraham Lincoln, but we don't know. It's, it's out there. It's on the internet. God won't give you more than you can handle. Not only did Mother Teresa not ever say that, the Bible doesn't say that. And, and lest you think that this is just one of those things that kind of gets said by people, nobody really says it anymore. I was talking at our staff meeting on Tuesday morning about, you know, kind of addressing this in the, in the passage today. And Pastor Shane uh, spoke up and goes, he told a story. He goes, oh man, when, when he was in the hospital, fighting for his life. Uh, I I don't know if this was before the heart transplant or after, probably before because he was intubated. And while he was intubated, they actually had his hands restrained because the, the, the feeling of intubation is so uncomfortable. He wanted to pull the tube out. And so they have to restrain his hands. So he's just suffering. He is in agony. He is in misery. He's in physical pain. He's in emotional pain. And one of the well-meaning nurses, this guy walked up to him and goes, Hey man, Just stay strong. God won't give you more than you can handle. And poor 
Shane. Like if you know our brother Shane, like he's in physical pain, he's in emotional pain, and now he's in theological pain and he can't answer, he can't respond, he can't say anything. And he said to us on Tuesday, he goes, all that I could do in that moment was just roll my eyes as big as I possibly could. I'm like, oh, that is perfect. That is the best possible thing you could have done. Because in that moment, it absolutely was more than he could handle. The Bible never says that God won't give you more than you can handle. What the Bible does say, there's there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that is sort of similar to this. The Apostle Paul says that no temptation, temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. Here it is. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, so friends, what the Bible does say is when you encounter a temptation, something that is a, a moral choice, do I sin or do I pursue faithfulness to God? If you are a Christian, you've been given the spirit of God. God guarantees that the temptation you're experiencing is within the bounds of normalcy and that he himself will always provide a way of escape. That is true about temptation to sin. But what about the trials and the hardships of life? What about a situation, you know, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What about a situation like Pastor Shane? Well, the, the Bible, the same author, actually, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians describes a situation. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about these afflictions we experienced when we were traveling in Asia. This is what he said. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. You hear that phrase? This is more than I could carry. This is more than I could bear. So much that we (laughs) despaired of life itself. Strong words. So, So we see that when there's temptation, God will always give us a means of escape. But there are trials in life. I actually might even just say it this way. All of life in a fallen, broken world is beyond our ability to bear it. Anybody with me on that? Now, here, here's, let me paint you a few scenarios because, because temptation and trials, they are two different things, but there is an interrelation. Scenario number one, you have a trial that comes upon you, some hardship, maybe, maybe think of something you didn't ask for. A company is downsizing, you lose your job, it's a financial trial, a financial hardship. But now all of a sudden, because of that trial, there is temptation, Maybe you're tempted to cut corners on your taxes. Maybe you're tempted to, I don't know, steal or, or you know, do something that's not fully above reproach because you're in this financial turmoil. Are you guys tracking with me? Give you a second scenario. Temptation comes, you give in to temptation, and then now all of a sudden you're in the midst of a, a trial, a hardship, a tribulation. Temptation comes, uh, 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 an affair You give in to those lustful desires. You have the affair and then now your family is just blown up and you're in the middle of trials and tribulations because you gave in to temptation. Third scenario, temptation arises. You say no and then tribulation comes. Thinking of our students, right? Going back to school, maybe some, you know, kid walks up and hey, let's, you know, let's go do some vandalism or something. That's... (laughs) Is that what the kids say? I don't know. I'm... Youths everywhere. Or 
let's go, you know, let's go spray paint the school or something. They're like, no, that's, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. And then now they're bullying you. Like, oh, you're too good. You're, you're, you think you're so high and mighty because you won't go, you know, vandalize the school property with us, right? You, you resist temptation and then hardship still follows. Notice what's missing from these potential scenarios. A life free of tribulation. <laughs> Such a thing does not exist. Jesus himself said, in this life, you will face trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This story shows us the interplay between trials and temptations. Think about the book of Daniel that we've seen thus far. These young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they are taken into exile in Babylon. This is a trial. They live in Jerusalem. They live in the city. They are young, attractive men. They are of the noble class. They're probably wealthier. And then all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar shows up because of God's judgment upon his people for their repeated unfaithfulness to the covenant that he made with them. And they are removed from their homeland. That's a trial. In chapter one, we see a temptation comes up though. They're tempted to eat from the king's table and to drink of the king's wine. And there's this temptation, well, just go along with the flow. It's something so small, something so simple. We'll just, we'll just go. But, but Daniel and his friends say, no, we will not dishonor the Lord because part of the covenant that Israel had made with the Lord included what they eat and what they drink. And so we will not participate in those, uh, those meals. We're going to only eat vegetables. We're going to only drink water. And they resisted temptation. They were faithful. Praise God. You turn the page to chapter two, a new trial comes upon them because King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he says, I need someone to interpret the dream. Actually, no, I need someone to tell me what I dreamed and then interpret it. Or I will, what is the quote? Rip you limb from limb and tear your houses down. So they cry out to God. There's this trial. What do we do? God, we need you to show up in a big way. And God does. God shows up in a big way. And he gives Daniel not only the dream, but its interpretation. And Daniel says, you know, here's what it is to the king. And he elevates them and puts them in a position of leadership. And it's amazing. Praise God. Turn the page. We're right back at it again. And here is a story that has both temptation and trial. Temptation to bow down and worship this golden image the trial that comes as a result of staying faithful to the God of Israel. Let's pick up the story in chapter uh, three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, which if you're tracking, that's hilarious. You remember chapter two? Remember the dream? What was he terrified by? An image, a statue made of gold. (laughs) And it's almost as if like, well, at least the head was made of gold. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar was like, you know, that dream scared me absolutely witless you know what I should do? I should build a statue to scare everybody else. And this time, instead of just the head being gold, I'm just going to make the whole darn thing gold. And it was 60 cubits high, and it was six cubits wide. That's very tall and not very wide. It's probably something like an obelisk or, or like a, a big totem pole. Some think it maybe was a really tall platform with a, like an idol statue set on top. Things that are 90 feet. Uh, a baseball, you know, the, from home plate to first base is 90 feet. Or if you took two semi-trailers and stacked them up tall, that would be about 90 feet. You know what else is 60 cubits, 90 feet? The temple in Jerusalem, where worship of the one true God says it was, it was 60 cubits long. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to set up a statue 60 cubits high. It's grotesque. It's over the top. It's covered in gold. 
He set it up on the plain of Dura, a big wide open space in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and actually just all the officials of the provinces to come to this dedication event. Dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I heard they're going to make a statue of Edgar Martinez, the great you know, Mariner's legend, and they're going to have some sort of a dedication event when that happens. This, this is a pretty common thing in the history of statues, I guess. Uh, I'm not a statue history expert, but it happens. Here's the point, though. Did you notice how there's like 10 different official titles listed? Multiple scholars that I read said that when you see all this repetition, we're going to see more repetition in a minute with all the musical instruments, it's the author's way of kind of mocking the excessiveness of the Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar is now ruling over an empire that at this point in human history is the largest one that's ever been. And it's, it encompasses people from all these different regions, all these different languages, lots of different ethnicities. And he says, I got to get all my bureaucrats, all of them together in this big plane. And we got to have some sort of a ceremony because I really need to unite my kingdom. And when, when there's all this repetition, it's, it's the, it's the author's way of saying, isn't this silly? Isn't this ridiculous? Look at how bloated and excessive and arrogant and over the top all of this is. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald, it's the guy with the loud voice, proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. By the way, There was a time when someone else built a big tower in the land of Babel, Babylon to try to unite all people and God scattered them and confused their languages. And here, like Nebuchadnezzar's like trying to be God. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, we were actually going to have a trigon in the worship band this morning. I forgot it, but maybe next week. A harp, bagpipe, bagpipe. Is Scotland? What is this? Uh, it's weird. Um, these ancient instruments, we don't really know fully what all of them are. This is translator's best attempt at trying to say it's, it's something like this. And every kind of music, here's what you're going to do. You hear the music? You fall down and you worship this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, right here on the spot, be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It's likely that they had a big furnace there on site so that they could work the gold, they could work the metals, they could kind of build the statue right there in the plains of Dura. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, all the peoples fell down and worshipped not the true God of the heavens and the earth, not the one who created people of all nations and languages, but they worshiped this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, therefore, at this time, certain Chaldeans, that's the wise men group, that's the, that's the tribe that was in charge of you know, magic and other sort of arts, they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. 
And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They're always saying that. They're always buttering him up. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You see, king, we were were paying attention. We took notes. This is reflective listening to show you that we are very good subjects and you really like us. And you didn't just try to kill us in the last chapter. Now, there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So these are guys like central to your operation. These, these Jewish exiles, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specifically. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They don't take good notes like we do. They don't practice good reflective listening like we do. They, in fact, they don't even serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, not just any rage, a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered, (laughs) I'm sure I'm on the right track here. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Pause for a moment here. This is a second commandment issue. When God called the people of Israel to himself, said you're going to be a nation that's set apart, you're going to be my people, you're my treasured possession. He goes, you're going to have no other gods before me. Don't worship any other gods. I am your God. I am Yahweh. And the second commandment, you remember this from Moses in the book of Exodus. He says, you're not to make any images and worship them. See, the gods of the people can be, uh, they can be fashioned. You can make an image because the people worship the gods of grain or the sun or gods of fertility or wine. You can make an image and you could worship them. but, But friends, what is the image of God? Is, did God make anything in his image and likeness? Oh, that's us. Humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, to make an idol, not only is it foolish because these are worthless idols, but it's, it's out of line with how God has created the universe. He made humanity to reflect him. This is a second commandment issue. So this is, this is a very big deal. They will not bow down. I want to draw out one other really quick point. Did you notice that these men are in a position of political authority and political power, and yet here it's all about to come crashing down? There's a scholar, Sharon Pace. She says this. She says, they may outwit their Babylonian counterparts and they may be protected by God's providence, but they continue to live under a whimsical and tyrannical king. Although this king can be mollified, he can be, you know, calm down, buddy, you're okay. Although he can be mollified, his subjects must continue to walk a narrow line because his malevolence may appear suddenly. Daniel's fellows may even serve the Babylonian government, but they must be constantly aware that the people who hold power over them may strike out against them at any time. And I just share that with you because 
as we are also called exiles in the New Testament, as we live under the, the rulership of various nations, there can be this temptation where we feel like if we could just get ourselves and, and the right people into positions of power, everything would be hunky-dory. And I think this story and really just human history shows that even when good people are in positions of power, sure, that's a good thing and there's a good effect, but it's really fleeting. And our hope should not be in earthly kingdoms, earthly power. Our hope should be in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? All right, that was a side point. That one was free of charge. Back to the story. Back in verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, buddies, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you're ready, I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, that's well and good. You should do it. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? that will deliver you from my hand. Will you hold these for me? Thank you. I don't know what that fell out of my Bible. Verse 16 and 17 might be like my favorite verses, maybe in the whole Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Wow. You, I mean, just pause for a moment. Yeah, like, what, what did the other guys say? Oh, king, live forever. And they're like, we don't owe you an answer or anything. If this is what's going to be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is absolutely a mic drop moment right there. And I love it. It shows confidence. Like our God is this powerful. Our God is this big. But it also shows humility. Maybe he's not going to save us. Maybe he's not going to rescue us. But either way, we're not worshiping your stupid statue. Now, you, you probably know in a moment that they will be delivered, and that's, that's good. There's lots of other stories in the Bible of people who were martyred for taking a stand for faithfulness to God. We in this life are not guaranteed deliverance uh, from every situation, but we are guaranteed that our God sees those acts of faithfulness and that whether in this life or the next, we will be redeemed. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. It's a really hard to translate Hebrew idiom. It's like his eyes were bulging out of his head and he burst a blood vessel. And if this was a cartoon, you would see like steam coming out of the top of his head. He ordered the furnace heated ridiculous, like seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and 
cast them into the fiery furnace. And those men were bound. They tied them up in their clothes, their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who were carrying them up to throw them in. Over the top, fury, rage, excess, I'm in charge, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, you will do what I say. If not, I'm going to go so over the top to make a public display. And these men, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound and tied up into the burning, fiery furnace. But then, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste, jumped to his feet. He declared to his counselors, "Um, excuse me, did we not cast three men tied up and bound into the fire? And they answered, this is true, O king. Whatever you say, yes. He answered and said, I see four men unbound, walking, in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And, and, this fourth person has like an appearance like a son of the gods. The fourth man in the fire has an appearance like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> servants, of the most high God. Come out. Come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, what is a satrap for crying out loud? And the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors, they all gathered around. And they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire even came upon them. I didn't mean to, but I think I wore this shirt near a campfire recently, and I put it on this morning, like, oh yeah, I smell the fire. Accidental, but providential, okay? Their clothes don't even smell, but they were unbound. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be you guys as God. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They ignored the king's command. They set it aside and yielded up their bodies. They were willing to die rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against their God shall be torn limb from limb. What is it with this guy? (laughs) He really likes tearing people limb from limb and their house is laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king of Babylon promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. About a hundred years before this took place, God was issuing warnings through various prophets telling his people, hey, you need to repent of your sins. You are violating the covenant. I said that you could live in the land if you, uh, if you abide by this covenant, but you are violating the covenant. I will remove you from the covenant. There's all these pronouncements of judgment. One such prophet was a man named Isaiah. 
And in Isaiah chapter 42, there are pronouncements of judgment. You need to repent. You are sinning. You are walking away from the covenant. But in Isaiah 43, God makes a promise of redemption. There are warnings of judgment. There are warnings of discipline and punishment. But in chapter 43, this is what God says. The Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You're unfaithful. Discipline and consequences will come, but I already have a plan of redemption. I've called you by name. You you are mine. You belong to me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God is saying, though you give in to temptation, my plan of redemption is greater. Now, when we look at a prophecy like that, when we, we talk about, you know, walking through rivers and waters and walking through fire, how many of you are like me and you hear that kind of in a metaphorical sense, Right? I don't fully know what they would have heard in the ancient Near Eastern context, but my guess is they might have heard that in a metaphorical sense as well. I mean, walking through fire isn't always the most common thing. But here, God puts on a display of power for his children, Israel, so that they could not deny When they see these men walk through literal fire and they are not burned, they could know that their God is a redeemer and he has not given up on them. Though the people of Israel had given into temptation, though they find themselves now in a very trying situation, God says, no, I've got you. I love you. I've called you by name and though the nations rage, I will not let them have the last word. Is this good news to anyone here this morning that that's what our God is like? Now, there is a very important question that is raised by the story. And the question is, who is the fourth man in the fire? I would, uh, I would offer to you to go listen to a, a hymn by St. Johnny of Cash this afternoon. It is just called The Fourth Man in the Fire. I was originally just going to say, boys, just play the song and then Let's take communion. That was it. But I wanted to say a few other things. You have to remember, we're we're relying upon the theology of pagan King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 25, he says, I see a fourth man in the fire and he looks like a son of the gods. In verse 28, I believe it is, he says, the Lord sent his angel. And so this has started all sorts of conversations, discussion, debates. Is this just an angel that God sent? Is this the angel of the Lord? Is this... For Christians, is this a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself? And discussions and debates rage. And there's a scholar named Tremper Longman who I think puts it really, really well. He says, in one sense, it doesn't make any difference. Even if the fourth figure was an angel, it was God's angel. God is still the redeemer. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes, right? He starts worshiping the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Jacob. It is impossible to be dogmatic unless one insists that every incarnate appearance of God must be the second person of the Trinity. I actually lean that direction. I think this is Jesus in the fire, but I agree. We can't be hardcore. We can't be dogmatic about it. 
It is safer to say that what we have here is a reflection of Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelt with three friends in the midst of the flames to preserve them from harm. In this sense, the Christian cannot help but see a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the point here. See, as, as, as admirable as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, they're not the heroes of the story. Were they not bound and helpless, thrown into a fire? Were they not in desperate need of someone to rescue and redeem them from the flames of the fire? Friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the heroes of this story. Again, their courage is admirable. We ought to emulate their example and follow their example. But friends, the hero of the story is God with us. The hero of the story is Emmanuel. And as Christians, we know that Jesus is our Emmanuel because Matthew tells us that he is God in in human form, Jesus of Nazareth. John tells us that the word became flesh. The apostle Paul said that he, he took on the likeness of human flesh. Jesus is God with us. And friends, when it comes to temptation, Jesus faced every temptation imaginable and he never yielded. Do you remember when the devil himself tempted Jesus and said, Jesus, I will give you all of the nations and peoples of the earth if you do what? Bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, check Deuteronomy, you idiot. I ain't bowing down to you. Jesus was perfectly faithful. When we are faithless and we give in to temptation, Jesus walked perfectly. Jesus faced trials and he was faithful in every trial. Jesus experienced hunger and and hardship and betrayal by friends. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he was perfectly faithful. He was more faithful than Moses. He, is, he, he faced those trials and hardships. Not only did he not give in a temptation, but he faced those trials with perfect reliance upon his heavenly father. And that Jesus, we know, faced the ultimate fiery furnace when he went to the cross and faced the fire of God's wrath. Friends, the Bible speaks of God's wrath against sin because sin is destroying the good creation and the, and the humanity that God loves. That war and, and racism and sexual abuse and theft and greed enrage God with great fury. And that if we do not repent, there is judgment coming. But when Jesus went to the cross... He made propitiation for the wrath of God. He took the wrath that sinful humanity deserves upon himself so that if we trust in him and his sacrifice, there remains no more judgment for us, no fear of the fury of fire because Jesus went into the ultimate fiery furnace on our behalf. And by the way, he walked out of that fiery furnace three days later without even the smell of smoke on his clothes, if I can put it that way. Because he's not dead anymore. He's alive and well, and he shows that he has all power in heaven and on earth. That's awesome. (laughs) The fourth man in the fire for us, friends, is Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus, now because of Jesus, with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, now we can face trials and temptations with great courage. Not because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of Jesus. I love these guys. I love their example. But when I'm needing courage, like these men, they looked to their Redeemer. We are to look to our Redeemer. 
So let me offer a few thoughts here about temptation, okay? We need to remember that God never tempts us. We are told clearly that when we face temptation, it is not God who is tempting us. We also know that God helps us, specifically Jesus helps us when we are tempted. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted. He knows what it feels like. And because he experienced that, he helps us in our temptations. And like I said from 1 Corinthians, when we are tempted, God always gives us a means of escape. God always gives us a means of escape. You know, you ever, um, you ever had a child? I love kids. I, really, I have several. And uh, they're just more honest than we are oftentimes. So you hear a kid's like, why did you do that? Well, I, I just didn't have any choice. I'm like, you had a choice. You did not have, you were not controlled by aliens to punch your sibling. Like, I had no choice. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Like, okay. <laughs> now, as we grow and as we age, sometimes we get a little bit more sophisticated, but really the same excuses sometimes are present. When, when temptation comes, God has promised that if you are in Christ, you have his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work within you, you can say no to temptation. Now, that does not mean that everything will then go smoothly for you because we still have to face trials. A couple things about trials. Number one, we should expect trials. Jesus himself said it. First Peter, in, in, in his letter, the, the Peter in his first letter says, you shouldn't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you as though something crazy was happening. This is just part of what it's like to live in a broken, fallen world. And yeah, they're more than we can bear. The trials of this life are more than we can bear on our own. But we should remember that God uses trials. God uses fire to shape us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Their clothes weren't burned, their hair wasn't burned, but you know what was burned off in the fire? Their bonds. The Bible uses this language of a refiner's fire. And if you are gold, to be the purest gold, you need to be heated up really, really hot so that the impurities rise to the surface and they can be swept away and what's left is the purest gold. Did you know that God is is doing that in our lives and he uses hardships to bring those ugly things to the surface so that we can repent of them. We can throw them into the fire that Jesus faced on the cross and we can walk forward in the newness of life that he's called to us. And we should always remember that God is with us and he loves us when we face trials. Man, it is so easy to believe when hardship comes that God doesn't love us. It is so counterintuitive for us to remember that as Christians, when we go through trials and when we go through hardships, they are oftentimes actually an evidence of God's love for us. Read, read Romans chapter 8 when, when he says, Paul, Paul says, I, I don't even consider that these hardships are worth comparing to the glory that's going to come later. And he says things like, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Sometimes the hardships are so hard, we don't even know how to pray, but God's Spirit groans with us and cries with us. And Paul says things like, like, doesn't matter what we face, height, depth, angels, powers, life, death itself, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. These trials are too hard for us. Don't try to bear them on your own. You need Jesus. You need a redeemer. 
the trials of life, you know, talking at the beginning about Pastor Shane's health issues, the heart failure. Like, that's too much for anyone to bear. Maybe you're facing health issues. Maybe it's not something acute. Maybe it's something chronic that just drags out over and over and over and over again. And you just want it to be done. And you're crying out to the Lord. God knows. And he hears and he loves you and he's with you in the fire. Maybe your marriage has not gone as smoothly as you thought it was going to based on your experience of watching Hollywood romantic comedies. And things are hard and the conflicts are right there at the surface and it feels like you're in a fiery furnace. God knows. God loves you. Don't give in to temptation. Don't run to sin to mollify it. God knows. I was having a conversation this week with some members of our church, Derek and Danielle, who are involved in foster care. Talking with Danielle and They've, they've had various kids come through. They've actually adopted their, their youngest daughter. They've adopted, but a few years ago, they had a situation where they had a different girl, brought her home from the hospital. Everything they thought was, was going to be, they thought they were going to get to adopt her and under the whimsical decisions of state of Washington and the powers that be, two years old, was removed from their care and sent thousands of miles away, maybe never to be seen again. And I remember crying with them. And and this is like, we were doing sermon series at the time. We were doing a teaching on like, um, get involved in foster care. (laughs) I mean, you should still get involved in foster care. Just might not be the, the rosy picture that sometimes it looks like on the brochures. We cried, we talked, and it was just too much for them to bear. And yet God showed up in those moments and there's grace and there's love I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what trials you're going through. But I know that God loves you. I know that he's faithful. I know that in those trials, he doesn't want you to give in to temptation and run to sin. And I know that he wants to meet you with his love and with his grace in those trials and in those hardships. Charles Spurgeon says, the richest thought that a Christian may have that a a Christian perhaps can live upon is this, that Christ is in the furnace with them. When you suffer, Christ suffers. No member of the body can be pained without the head enduring its portion. And so you, a member of Christ's body, in every pain you feel, pain the head, Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. We bring our pains. We bring our trials. God, we, we may not be faced with a, a bow down to a statue or burn sort of situation, but God, in our hardships and our pains, we are tempted to give in to sin. We are tempted to take the easy way out. God, would you forgive us for those times when we do? As we come to the table now, and as we eat and as we drink, would you remind us that Jesus on the cross, you faced the the wrath of God that we deserve because of all those times that we give into temptation. God, would you remind us of the grace that you have for us. God, as we bring our, our trials to you, 
as we eat and as we drink, would you nourish us and strengthen us, Lord God? Remind us that all of this is too much for us to carry, but that Jesus, you have carried it all, the weight of the world on your shoulders as you carried the cross. So we can come to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Shane. Hey, friends. Good to see all of you today. Um, so I sat in the last service, and man, it was a little emotional for me. And Stephanie Hansen was sitting right down here in the last service. And I know many of you in this service also uh, who experience, um, like, things, certain things come to mind, like, really quickly when we talk about trials, when we talk about suffering. And you've experienced some of that in various ways. And uh, you know how real it can be. You know how isolating and lonely that can be. And so this was a really uh, timely message for me. And I would bet if we'll let ourselves it's a, it, be moved by it, be changed by it, it's a really timely message um, for all of us. Because I know for me, um, I mean, I kept doing the, like, how long, oh, Lord. Like, that was about as much as I could pray oftentimes when I was in the hospital this year. And, um, yeah, I wanted it to go away quickly. Um, and so that wasn't, that wasn't easy. Um, but there was a comfort in knowing some of these truths and this just affirms them and I need that over and over again so that when I hit those times again and I will I'm promised I will um, that I'll have that as a comfort even still Uh, we are promised trials and uh, God has kept his promise in that right Uh, we know that Uh, so I hope you're encouraged by that today and I hope that in the midst of your trials and your suffering uh, you just remember these promises of God that we've talked about this morning And let's reflect on that a little more now as we turn, for those of us who are Christians and followers of Jesus, as we turn now to practice the Lord's Supper, the experience of the Lord's Supper together or communion. Um, And if you had elements that you brought in, uh, that you grabbed on the way in this morning, you can go ahead and open those up now. But I'd encourage you, as you do, to just hold on to them for a minute. We're going to do what the Word of God says, which is reflect on how we're supposed to go about doing this together when we do it each week. Um, so I'm going to read from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where, um, where Jesus' instructions to his first disciples are uh, laid out for us. And so let's, let's remember uh, how we're supposed to go about this and the solemnness of this occasion uh, before we um, just do it out of rote uh, practice. So this is the word of the Lord. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks, The cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we'll often discuss about this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul here is reminding us that we are to pause, to reflect, to examine ourselves a bit before we just rotely receive the Lord's Supper together. And so as the band plays, let's take a moment now and we'll do that very thing together. We'll examine our hearts together in silent prayer, and we'll reflect on how God would have us respond to what we've learned today about trials and temptations and about what faithfulness to God looks like in spite of those trials and temptation.
And then when you're ready, uh, you can go ahead and eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and then uh, we'll continue worshiping through songs of praise together after that.